Okay. Last week we started in on the words of Jesus that he had for the second church of the seven, uh, and that is the church of Smyrna. So Myrna, we are dedicating today to you. The study of Smyrna is dedicated to Myrna. The name Smyrna is derived from the word myrrh, um, and myrrh is an aromatic product, gum, that is produced from this thorny bush in Africa and Arabia. It's used as a painkiller. They tried to give Jesus myrrh when he was on the cross, and uh, he rejected it. And it's also used, anciently, it was also used as an embalming uh, product for a corpse. If you, we left uh, Ephesus, that was the first church, and traveled 40 miles north, we would come to the city of Smyrna. And um, it was called the Glory of Asia. It was founded in 1200 BC, and it was destroyed. It was rebuilt again in 300 BC, uh, according to plans that were produced from Alexander the Great. So we're talking about a lot of history here. It was considered very wealthy, beautiful, and a very important seaport in Asia Minor because it had a direct trade route to India and Persia and Rome. Archaeologists have found a number of different coins at Smyrna to uh, validate its existence, and it is said to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer, for those of you who are Homer fans, or Simpson fans, and just on one today. The city was the center of worship for the emperor Tiberius, and in addition to having a temple there for Tiberius, the, temp the city was surrounded by a ring of buildings and other temples, and those, the way they were situated looked like Smyrna had a crown, and, and so it was, uh, this was called the crown of Smyrna, and interestingly, one of Jesus' promises to the inhabitants of Smyrna was he would give them the crown of life. So it was known for having its own geo uh, uh, architectural crown of buildings. And as what to me, it's like a play on words that God makes with a sense of humor. He says, you inhabitants of Smyrna, I'll give you a crown of life. Uh, because Smyrna was known as having an actual uh, archaeological, I mean, uh, architectural crown. Uh, it had a large Jewish population who was very hostile to Christians. And the population of the Jewish population of uh, Smyrna increased after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It boomed. And for some reason, of all the cities, many, many Jews went to Smyrna, and it became a settlement for them. And it was apparently there that the preponderance of Jews in the city began to persecute Christians, even uh, putting to death early Christian leader Polycarp. And that was in 155 AD. So that takes us way out. 70 AD's destruction of Jerusalem, 155 AD, early Christian leader Polycarp is put to death by the Jews in the city of Smyrna. So uh, we have to talk about Polycarp. You may or might, may not be aware of the role that Polycarp plays in some of the current modern-day assessment of Revelation, but here's the deal. According to most, most Christians, especially Christians who are waiting for Jesus to return with vengeance uh, and with reward upon the earth. Revelation was written from Patmos by the Apostle John around 90 AD, well after the fall of Jerusalem. This is a standard common belief. And this presents a problem for preterism. Uh, preterism being the belief that everything was fulfilled uh, in the scripture that was uh, foretold of, if you're talking about full preterism. Nevertheless, there's been some remarkable studies. If you're interested at all in understanding the situation of Jerusalem, its fall, etc., there's a book by a guy named Ken Gentry. It's called The Fall of Jerusalem, and it places the dating of Revelation well before 70 AD. That's a book you might consider. But to me, it's a no-brainer when you consider the internal evidence in Revelation. However, we have to admit there's a problem when it comes to the early church leader 
named Polycarp, okay? And he was a well-known post-apostolic, so after the apostles, Polycarp came after the apostles in terms of his, the core of his life, uh, but he was before the patristic leaders, which are known as the early church fathers. So we have, the, we have Jesus, we have the apostles, and we have the early church fathers, and right in between them, we have a guy named Polycarp. He's one of the very first early church leaders between the apostles and the patristic fathers. He is supposed to have been a friend of John the uh, Beloved. So the end of the apostolic period has John, the last apostle, and it is rumored, it is by tradition said, that Polycarp and John were friends. Now, Polycarp was born in 70 AD, the year that uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that John was alive, and if John wasn't taken at the destruction, then as Polycarp aged from 70 AD to 80, he would have been 10 years old, 90, he would have been 20. Uh, the year um, 100 AD, he would have been 30 years old, and he could have met, met John if John lived to 100 um, AD. Uh, if it's true, Polycarp would have been very familiar with the destruction of Jerusalem, even though he was born the year it occurred. And uh, through his relationship with John the Beloved, and he would have been an ardent non-futurist. We would read in Polycarp's writings about everything being concluded in uh, 70 AD, but we don't read that. That's part of the problem. I think he would write, he wrote something called an epistle to the Philippians. Not, it's not the one that Paul wrote. That's his most popular letter that Polycarp wrote. And he would have probably included something about Jerusalem being destroyed and the effect it took on everything that's written in the Bible, but he didn't write anything about it. And so then, if we add in that Polycarp had a disciple by the name of uh, Irenaeus, who wrote about looking forward to the resurrection. So what we have here is Jesus, the apostles, we have Polycarp, and we have Irenaeus right here, kind of right there in between the apostolic church and the beginning of what are called the early church fathers. And those two are kind of the link between those two larger groups. And we don't have Polycarp mentioning anything about 70 AD destruction, even though it happened the year he was born. And we don't have Irenaeus doing much except confirming that he awaits the resurrection. We don't have Irenaeus saying that the resurrection occurred at the time of 70 AD when Jesus, uh, or began to occur when Jesus returned with judgment upon Jerusalem and then the resurrection starts happening. So what do we to say to all this? I wanna just approach it with what do we know and what do we not know? And then from that, you can decide how you're gonna think about it. This is what we do know. Polycarp was born in 70 AD. He was martyred in 155 AD. Uh, at the age of 85. This we know. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he was the bishop after the destruction of Jerusalem, since he was born the year it happened. So he had been, that, that church has been there for a while. He was there as the bishop. He became a leading second century post-apostolic figure, as you know, before the patristic age or the age of the early church fathers. And his major writing, the letter to the Philippians, is closely related to the epistles and martyrdom of the a guy who was kind of his pupil, and that was Ignatius, who was a disciple of Polycarp. We also know that about 110 CE, Christian era, when Polycarp was 40 years of age, Ignatius, while traveling to Rome, he was put to death when he arrived at Rome, passed through Smyrna, the church we're talking about, the second church, and was warmly greeted by Polycarp. So we have a connection between Ignatius and Polycarp at this, when Ignatius was on his way to Rome, stopping in Smyrna, and there was a warm greeting. 
Ignatius then left and he visited Philippi. And after he departed, some of the believers in Philippi wrote to Polycarp and said, will you send us copies of the letters that Ignatius has sent to you? Tell us what he, give us copies of what he said, the epistles of Ignatius, and what he said to you and to other churches in Asia Minor. Polycarp, he, he did this, he had copies made of what Ignatius wrote, but he sent a cover letter. And this cover letter is what has come to be known as the epistle to the Philippians written by Polycarp. And in his own letter, Polycarp encourages his readers to stand fast in the faith, avoid heretical teachings, look to the examples of martyrdom suffered by Ignatius, and persevere in philanthropy and good works. This was stuff that Polycarp here, post-apostolic church, pre-patristic fathers, includes in his epistle to the believers at Philippi. And he concludes that epistle by sending them copies of the uh, epistles that Ignatius had written and that they had requested, and he asked them to send further news about what's going on in the church. What else do we know? This is stuff we know. We know that Ignatius and many other early apostolic leaders, post-apostolic leaders, post-apostolic leaders, included in their writings the hope of a resurrection. So, from the preterist view, if Jesus returned, ignited or initiated the resurrection of people, it's interesting that Ignatius doesn't seem to recognize that that has begun, and he t- writes about, in fact, most early church patristic fathers write about the hope of the resurrection to come. And so that is troublesome to the preterist view. To put it bluntly, if we did a line-by-line survey of all the early church fathers, we'd discover over a 1,000 references of them looking toward the resurrection to come. Okay. The bottom line assessment of all this is if Polycarp knew John, that's the big if, the author of Revelation, of, uh, as tradition su- suggests, then John would have, in all probability, taught Polycarp that the 70 AD destruction was the second coming, the resurrection, the end of all things, and that the resurrection had occurred, as preterists maintain, and he would have made this information clear to Ignatius, and the early church fathers would not have been including their hope for the resurrection to come. So by this information, we understand why today there are so many who are still reading scripture and reading early church father quotes, believing in a futurist idea of the resurrection to come, which they still tie to the second coming of Christ. So that's why we have a strong futurist idea of what's going to happen. Look at scripture, it talks about it, and we tend to think, well, that applies to us. And we look at the early church fathers, and they're talking about it, and so it seems like it hasn't happened yet. Now let's talk about what we don't know. We've talked about what we do. First, many futurists maintain that the angel of Smyrna, to whom Jesus is writing, and he says to every one of the churches, to the angel of Ephesus, to the angel of Smyrna, to the angel of Pergamos, well, many, many Christians teach that that angel was Polycarp. That is something we don't know. That is a huge conjecture because he was the bishop of that city, but he wasn't born till 70 AD and he didn't die till 155. So to say that when John received this revelation, Jesus was calling Polycarp the angel is a huge conjecture. And that throws everything into a kind of an upheaval. But we don't know, or so we don't know that that's true. Tradition says it was, but we have no evidence except tradition. Secondly, we don't know if John the Beloved knew Polycarp as tradition maintains. It's only tradition that says they knew each other. Anywhere you look, it says, and they were acquainted with it, it is said that they knew each other. Where there's smoke, there's fire. They could have. That really moves our dating around uh, if they did. If John was taken and saved at the 70 AD destruction, as Jesus kind of suggested could happen 
when he was on the seashore after his resurrection with Peter, and Peter says, well, what about John? And, P- and Jesus says to Peter, well, what, what is it if he stays here till the end of the age? What does it matter to you? That there's this idea that John was the last disciple on earth until the destruction of the final destruction of the age, and John was taken with Christ at that return, uh, then he was, would not have been a contemporary of Polycarp because Polycarp was born that year. So it would have been impossible. Third, and this is important, especially as I understand resurrection today, which is not the way full preterists understand resurrection. The way I understand resurrection from scripture is not how full preterists see resurrection. But I understand resurrection to be spiritual according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we are changed from the corruptible to the incorruptible, that we are given a different type of heavenly body rather than an earthly body, and that it's an active spiritual event, in my opinion, that began at the advent of Christ's return. His return initiates that. Uh, People then are, they come from the graves as described, and from that point forward, when people die, the resurrection occurs, the judgment, the rapture, the resurrection, and it's a spiritual event, and that will be ongoing for the rest of earthly creation. As long as we're here, human beings will die. They'll receive an immediate resurrection of the damned or, of the, or to eternal life. They will suffer loss or they will be rewarded with uh, gifts, blessings, crowns, and that's the process. So that's the way I see it. Having said this, if Ignatius and the others were excited about the resurrection, I don't see this as a contradiction. I see us as being excited about the resurrection too. I can't wait till I can kiss my elbow, in other words. Uh, Because here in this body, I'm limited. So in that body, the heavenly body, and however it is given to us as a gift from God according to scripture, when we pass, we will be given this spiritual resurrected body and, and I too look forward to it The thing to remember is when the early church fathers, the patristic fathers, talked about resurrection and their excitement for it, they did not ever speak of it. I shouldn't say ever because I think there are two times out of the thousands, a thousand, but I think they never tied it to Jesus' second coming. They just spoke of a resurrection to come. Whereas in scripture, the apostles always talked about the resurrection and they tied it to when he returns, the resurrection will begin, it will ignite. So uh, this is how I understand all things related to Polycarp, the dating of Revelation, and the fact that those who followed in after him wrote of resurrection. It was something they anticipated and looked for as early church fathers, and if you were to write a personal uh, survey of your own faith, and if you included today, and I look forward to the day of resurrection, I don't think it's out of harmony with the preterist view at all, Uh, but there's a lot to think about there. All right, let's read what Jesus has John write to the angel of Smyrna, all right? Again, many believers think Polycarp, born in 70 AD, died 155, was the angel of Smyrna, and um, you're gonna have to decide that for yourself in terms of the dating. So, Revelation verse, uh, chapter two, verse eight. And you, I hope he's careful, all right. And the angel of the church, excuse me, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. We've co- we covered those passages last week, okay? And stopped where Jesus then adds, but thou art rich, which we're gonna discuss shortly. Then he continues and says, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those which thou shalt suffer. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death, which we covered already. So there's some interesting observations right off the bat in those short four passages to the church of Smyrna. Let's go through them. The letter to the church of Smyrna is constructed in a way where 
there's a series of contrasting elements here. Did you, did you recognize them as, as we read? He says, begins, I am the first and the last, all right? He says, I was dead and I'm now alive. This is describing Jesus himself at the introduction of his comments to them. He has an acknowledgement of their poverty, but he says, but you are rich. So we have contrast going back and forth. He says, these guys claim to be Jews, but in reality, they're of the synagogue of Satan. And then finally, he says, even if you die, you will be given a crown of life. So through that letter to Smyrna and the message to the angel to give to the church there, we have contrast. This versus that, this versus that, four times different contrasts. And I think that might play into something, I'm not sure what. Of all the seven churches, the letter to Smyrna, or the Christians at Smyrna, is the most complimentary. This church, Jesus does nothing but essentially praise. There's no word of condemnation, only encouragement. The Christians had endured persecution and tribulation from all sides there. They refused to acknowledge the emperor as Lord. They refused to participate in worship of the state gods. And for this, they were subjected to hostility. They were subjected to the confiscation of their property. And Jesus was aware of these trials and tribulations, as we pointed out last week, even of their poverty, as we pointed out last week. But he reminds them in this parenthetical reference there in verse two, uh, but you're rich. I know of your poverty, but you're rich. And that's where we left off. And so we see the paradox of this statement, which is created for us when we examine the human existence of poverty and difficulty and struggling and suffering. And Jesus saying, but let me tell you secret, secretly or whisper, whisper, you're really rich. That, that's the disparity. That's the paradox of what Jesus says here. What is that paradox? Those who are poor in things he, here, in the abundances of things and worldly focus here, because of a focus on eternal matters, will be rich in heavenly places. That's the paradox. If you're poor here because of a focus on heavenly things, you will be rich there. Now, this concept is made plain in the parable of uh, Jesus gave of Lazarus and the rich man. And we've talked about this a number of times. In Luke 16, 19 through 23, Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at the gate full of sores. There's, the, there, there's nothing more said. It's just, this was this guy and there was this guy. And desiring the beggar, Lazarus, to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus paints a picture of the two men. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died also and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And there goes on to tell another uh, part of the story which we could talk about. But what's interesting about this parable Really, this is probably a real-life situation. I say this because I don't think it was a parable. I think it actually happened. It sounds like a parable, but Lazarus is the only proper noun name Jesus ever uses in any of his parables. He pulls and assigns to the poor man the name Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and Lazarus actually did die during Jesus' life. Jesus called him forth from the grave, so it's possible that while Lazarus was dead, what Jesus describes here is not a parable, but an actual thing that occurred at Lazarus' death while his body laid in the grave with his spirit going to Abraham's bosom and possibly a rich man who was involved in the story carrying this thing out because it's the only one, the only of all parables where Jesus personalizes it using one of his friend's name who had died during his life and was brought back to life. So, but what's interesting about the parable is nothing is assigned to the character of the rich man other than the fact that he dressed well and he fared sumptuously every day and nothing more is shared about the poor man other than he was a beggar that laid at the rich man's gate hoping to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. So admittedly, there's an implication that the rich man did not take measures to ensure that the beggar received more. 
there is that that's kind of inferred. Uh, in any case, they both died, and it appears that the beggar simply because of his beggarly state. That's, I mean, it just, he doesn't say that he was a great Jew. He doesn't say he was a follower of the law. He doesn't say he professed Jesus' name. It just says the beggar went to Abraham's bosom, which was the paradise part of Sheol, while the rich man went directly to prison. Buried, is how it says. The thought came to me, a simple idea. I wonder if, just for argument's sake, if God is perfectly just in all things and makes all things right and fair among people, could it be that on the counterbalances of the eternity, everything is weighed out and made fair? And I say that because of stories like what Jesus tells. Would it be a time when all unfairness, injustice, infliction of sorrow and difficulty is balanced with comforts and blessings or loss? If somebody fared really well in this life, would they suffer a loss in the afterlife just based on uh, equanimity? I don't know, but it seems like from some of the things that he says that there is a balancing after this life, and that comes right out through this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, it subtly suggests that. In any case, riches and wealth on earth does seem, we know Joseph of Arimathea was necessary to have Jesus to own the lot, and with his wealth, he helped bury him, and it's a, it's a, it's a noble thing. We know Abraham was a wealthy man, and that's the father of the faith. So it's, this is not an indictment against people having possessions and wealth. It's an indictment about them thinking that that somehow means something in the eternities, and especially if it becomes a priority here in this life. So uh, after the rich young man could not sell all that he had, you remember this story in Matthew 19? Jesus says to his disciples, who said, tell us about this. And he said, a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said. And again, I say unto you, he repeats it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I think it's purposeful that he used that eye of the needle reference because that's the, you've all heard the idea that the camels were packed up with, with goods upon their back and they would get to the city walls where the eye of the needle, it was called, to get through the, the, the camel had to be taken where it would kneel down and they would help push it through and they had to unload all of its packages off so it could get through the city wall into or out of the city. And Jesus likens that practice to a rich man. He says it's not really easy for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven like a camel would packed up with his worldly goods. To me, he's saying that stuff's gonna be lost before he enters in. That stuff is gonna have to be taken off before he or she thinks that they can enter into the city. And so the imagery is really important and possibly that's the, that's the application of the lake of fire. So Jesus seems to speak to the idea of afterlife loss or rebalancing when he says in Luke chapter six, woe to you that are rich. Again, not an indictment against wealth. It's an indictment against prioritizing the wealth or worshiping it. For you have received your consolation. That's a strange thing. It's like you've gotten your reward. You know, and he goes on and says, woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. He's constantly giving us these opposites in scripture. And we see it in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. It's almost like it's based off some kind of law. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did your fathers to the false prophets. So he, said, he, doesn't, give any, he doesn't give any justification. He doesn't say woe unto you who laugh because you're drunk and having a great time in your life. He just says laugh. And I, I'm sure it doesn't mean a literal thing. I'm sure it's a spiritual meaning as it is with almost everything Jesus talks about. In Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness. Now he's starting to get to the heart of it. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Think of the camel. 
That's not what the camel's life is about. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow all these fruits from the ground that I own and has given me a great harvest. And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and will build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, I love that part. I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God, this is said unto him, God steps into his mind, thou fool. This night thy soul will be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So, Jesus says, is he that lays up treasure for himself, ready for the lesson, and is not rich toward God. It's not, so it's not just the laying treasures up for himself. That's not the whole thing. It's that they have done that to the exclusion of being rich toward God. This is the lesson that he says. If you're blessed with wealth, that's one thing. But if, if you're planning and you're scheming and it's everything and you're not rich toward God, that's what you're like. You're like this rich man when, you, when you're gonna pass on and everything will be taken. Right after this teaching, Jesus says, therefore, in connection to what I've just said, I say to you, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than what you eat, the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have a storehouse nor a barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the birds? And which of you taking thought can add one cubit to thy height? If then you are not able to do that thing which is least, why take thought for the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow, they toil not, nor do they spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your father knows that you have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So those who choose to follow God to make them rich in the ways he chooses are, in my estimation, banking on riches in the life to come. That's what it seems to be saying. This is what Jesus is saying to the believers at Smyrna. He says, I know your trials, I know your tribulations, I know your poverty. But he says, but you're rich. And that's, that's the, the payoff there. Christ admits to knowing their thing, but they have, as a, as a church, laid up treasures where moth and dust and rust and thieves don't break in and steal. The paradox of believers' earthly poverty compared to their heavenly wealth is reiterated when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Talk about paradoxes. He says, as poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. It's that paradox in scripture where you're given the one and then you get the opposite. And Paul talks about that in terms of, in this life, the Christian at that day and age was sorrowful, but they're always rejoicing. They're poor, but they're rich. They have nothing, but they possess everything. That kind of, uh, far Eastern mentality is coming right out here where, you know, that which is is not and that which is not is. Very similar to what Jesus says here in the, to the church at Smyrna, these contrasting things. Of course, the principle behind believers choosing in, impoverishment and the things of this world in order to have wealth in the great beyond is based on um, just a choice, uh, the, the condition of the individual. Even those who are blessed with an abundance, they make a choice. Does my abundance rule me or does my abundance, uh, is it used to bless others? That's the key. Paul wrote in uh, 
of Jesus, speaking of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that, you ready, listen to this, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. We're not talking about material money here necessarily. We are talking about uh, the focus, the attitude, the priority to help others become rich and wealthy in the things of the spirit rather than focusing on your own material wealth. That's really more of what we're talking about. I would imagine we can have a billionaire who is very, very benevolent and good and, and great at helping others become rich in the Lord, and we can have somebody who's poor with $20 in their account, and they focus on all their money only. So it's not about the amounts. It's about the attitude that comes with the amounts. Paul later gives insight to the problem of riches in the lives of believers. He says in 1 Timothy uh, 6, 8 through 11, and having food and clothing, let us be content. But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare. This is why it's difficult when you have it. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. There you see the love, which while some coveted after, they have erred in the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's, a, it's, a, it's an idolatry, really. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So Paul consistently supports Jesus' uh, parables and teachings about this strange balancing between our focus and lives here in the material world and what will be in the afterlife. Can a person retain their earthly wealth as their primary priority, their primary priority, and enter into the kingdom? From everything it says in scripture, it seems very difficult. I just gotta say, it just seems difficult. As difficult as for an, a camel to crawl through the eye or the wall of a, um, of a city. And so Jesus here, while admitting to understanding that the saints at Smyrna are, have poverty, he reminds them that in actuality, they're rich. That's a beautiful sidebar. That's a beautiful little parenthetical reference he gives, but you're rich with the things of the spirit. It'll be interesting to see what riches translate to after this life, what that means in the mind of God and Jesus when he tells a believer that they're rich in those things versus the things of this world. All right, let's move on. Uh, the next three verses, we're not gonna cover all of them, uh, of, the, of the message to the believers at Smyrna. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, ready? And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death. Woo! And I will give you a crown of life. He finishes his message to Smyrna with saying, he that has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death, which we've covered. So go back to verse nine. I know thy works, tribulation, poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The term blasphemy, it typically, it means the same thing. It's the same word blasphemy here in the Greek as it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. Same Greek word. Uh, blapto and feme, blapto means uh, injury or hurt. Blapto, injury or hurt. And feme means a saying. So hurting through the words. Hurting through words, okay? Uh, Blapfo feme. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, and I know the blasphemy, the things these guys are saying to you that are hurtful. That's what it is. And I don't think he's talking about blasphemy against God and the Holy Spirit and all that. He's talking about it being blasphemy 
that they are hurting with their mouths, these believers. We aren't given the reason for the reproaches, but in all probability, it was on their account of their faith in Christ. Who was doing the harm or hurting through words to them? Them which say they are Jews. Jesus says this. So Jesus, a Jew himself, says, I know these guys who are hurting you with their words, and these are these guys who say they're Jews, right? Now remember, he's the one who says these maligners were merely saying they were Jews, but they are not Jews. They are actually of the synagogue of Satan is what he says. So there's some serious imprecations here toward the attackers of the faithful in Smyrna. First of all, for them to say they are Jews must refer to the fact that they are, I don't think they're saying we're Jews and they aren't of the house of Israel. I think that they are saying we're Jews, we have the law, we have the prophets, we've been circumcised, and uh, Abraham's our father, but they only have the outward, and Jesus is saying that's not a Jew at all. Um, to me, this is not talking about phonies regarding the material connection to the house of Israel, but it's talking about people who are phonies in their heart toward God, which really makes Israel. As you know, with the advent of Christ and his authoring and finishing the faith, that from that point on, there is no difference between a Jew and a Greek. There's no difference between male and female. There is no difference between a slave and someone who is free. Everybody is alike in Christ Jesus, okay? That is made clear, and what God wants is not circumcision of the flesh. He wants the circumcision of everybody, male and female, bond and free, of the heart, made without hands, the circumcision without hands. That is what makes a person a real Jew, a real member of the house of God that their hearts have been circumcised. The outer material connection to the faith no longer mattered, and I think that's why Jesus can say, these guys say they're Jews, but they're really of the synagogue of Satan. Paul says something interesting in Romans 9, 6. He says, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. That line tells us that once Christ came, forget about the material connection to Israel. Not everybody who comes out of there is Israel. Those who are Israel are those who are of the heart. He says in Romans 2.28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. That means circumcision in the flesh. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh a Jew. But he is a Jew, verse 29, which is one inwardly. So if we cross-reference this with what uh, Jesus says to John in Revelation 2, that's what Jesus is talking about. They say they're Jews, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. He's saying they say they are, and we could trace their genealogy, and we could find that they are of the house of Israel, the house of David, the house of whoever, but they are not really Jews. Paul goes on, he says, he, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So here to, to Smyrna, uh, Jesus says, these guys, they say they're Jews. Forget about it. It's, it's all the other stuff. And so just because an, a, per, a person is out of Israel does not anymore mean they are a Jew. That it, it, Paul makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. Those who are truly of the house of Israel are the house of God are those whose hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit, and they are true Jews. So that's why we know that God is consistent in his promises to the people of the Old Testament, going through the New Testament, to believers today. All his promises to his people are passed to everybody who is truly a Jew, truly Israel, anyone whose hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Okay, these sorts, these Jew, non-Jew sorts in Smyrna were not Israel in the actual heart sense. Instead, Jesus says they're of the synagogue of Satan, synagogue of Satan. Uh, Smyrna was interesting 
because as I said, there were a number of Jews in all parts of Asia Minor, but Smyrna had a lot of them. And so to his comments to the church at Smyrna, he's really speaking a lot about those people who have gone there. Uh, why they went there, we don't know. But we do know that after the destruction of Jerusalem in the days of Polycarp, that the Jews were bitter enemies of Christians. This is when the heat started to get turned up and Christians were being put to death more and more and more. And so we know that in Smyrna, by the hands of the Jews and others, Christians were being tortured. It was the Jews who put Polycarp to death in 155 AD. So we see that Jesus' words to them at Smyrna here could have long future effects, and it could be the historical view that we use to understand that uh, of Revelation. According to Eusebius in History 4.15, when Polycarp was apprehended and he was brought before the proconsul of Smyrna, the Jews were the most furious in demanding his death, and when the mob sought to light him on fire, Eusebius says that it was the Jews who ran to get the fuel. Uh, I don't think it's anti-Semitism in the least. I, I think it's just what happened historically. Perhaps many years before this spirit resided in the hearts of those in 55, 155 AD to kill Polycarp, Jesus is talking and saying, look, at this is what's going on now. This, this spirit fomented over a period of many decades to the point where they are killing people. Who and whenever Jesus makes it plain that they abided and those who are doing this abided and originated in the synagogue of Satan. Of course, you know, the synagogue is a gathering place. In fact, before it became an actual place, the word synagogue really just means an assembly, a congregation. And it could be uh, uh, 10 men or more back in the old day, and it was just an assembly of people. And uh, so if they were too far from the temple, synagogues were all around anciently and then they became more and more popular as time went on. The King James says they are, of, they are the synagogue of Satan. The other translation says they are a synagogue of Satan and that means something very different. If they were the synagogue of Satan, it has a time and place capture there that this is what they are and if he said they are a synagogue of Satan, it has more of an application over historical period of time, and um, so I don't know which is right. In fact, a Greek person might know what this is. I tried to discover it, but I couldn't figure it out, so I don't know why the King James says it's the and why the article A is there in the other revised editions, but that's how it is. It, instead of being really worshipful Jews of God, let's say they were material Jews, circumcised, follow the law, but they loved God they would not be included in this. He's not just saying, he's not calling these people of the synagogue of Satan who loved God and didn't accept Jesus yet. He's talking about people who materially had a connection to uh, Israel, but their hearts were far from God. So don't mistake that he's picking on all Jews who hadn't received Christ yet. He's just talking about those who are picking on Christians that have no heart for God at all. They're not Jews in reality. There are a few views relative to this term synagogue of Satan. One is before the 70 AD destruction, Satan was still on the rampage. Uh, I don't know if I believe that. I think I personally believe from scripture and Jesus' own words in John that the victory was done. I think perhaps the victory that Satan lost power, he still had the right to tempt and, and possess and do things but his power was gone as Jesus approached the cross because Jesus himself says it's done. Satan's day is done. And he said it while he was, but I, don't, I could be taking that to an extreme. Others say that Satan still remains in control today, that Satan is able to capture people and has the power to drag their souls to eternal fire forever and ever. I personally do not believe that is supported by scripture. I think God has had the victory through Christ and Satan, while allowing to tempt, cannot, does not have the power to keep. He cannot keep anymore, why? Because the victory was had by Christ on the cross for once and for all. So just like in the Garden of Eden, Satan was allowed to roam about, he was allowed to tempt and lie and get people to do things wrong, but he had no power. 
Once the fall came, he got the title deed to the world and he reigned until Jesus came, who gained it back. I think his power is gone. But those are kind of the two ways people see when it comes to the synagogue of Satan. Uh, at verse 10, Jesus adds some things that are, in my estimation, radical to consider uh, to the church at Smyrna, and if it has application to us, still as radical, and I think it does. Jesus says to them, fear not of those things which thou shalt suffer. Don't be afraid of the suffering you're going to go through. Now, this is, I mean, this is a philosophically challenging statement because Jesus is saying, I've had the victory. I've overcome sin and death. I've resurrected from the grave. I'm at the right hand of my father. And he tells the believers on earth, don't be afraid of the things you're going to suffer. That is the question that many non-believers have. Why does he allow the suffering? Here Jesus says in the letter to the Smyrna believers, don't fear what you're gonna suffer. And then he gives specifics. He says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. We'll talk about that. Be thou faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. That's from the Lord to the believers at Smyrna. Be thou faithful unto death. He doesn't say, if you believe in me, I'm gonna come and save you from death. He doesn't say, if you believe in me, I'll keep you out of prison. If you're faithful to me, you're not gonna suffer. He doesn't give any of that here. To Smyrna, he lays it out plainly. He says, be thou faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's one of those paradoxical or opposing statements. Now, we have a multiplicity of things presented here, and I'm gonna cover three of 10. Next week, we'll continue on with the, the other seven, or six, whatever, it's three of six. I, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. These are words to believers, and I think when we read them today, I can apply it to my life as readily as the believers at Smyrna could put. I am forever amazed at the fact that in the face of this world, under the care and consideration and love of God and Christ, believers are allowed and permitted to suffer. He allows it. Um, are, and we're talking about some seriously egregious suffering. Um, seriously, even out to this day where faithful, loving Christians are uh, afflicted, they're unjustly treated, they are put to death, they suffer with difficulties and disease and trials and woe and poverty, and he does not stop it. There's a magical belief that God will stop all the pains in this life, and I don't see it as, as real. And if we did see it as real, then, then it's gonna fall upon the believers to have the faith for him to do it. And then I see the bondage of faith being something we're failing at. I believe God is sovereign, and if his way was to keep all of us from suffering, we would. But his way is not, as evidenced by these words to the believers at Smyrna. He doesn't say if you have the faith, you won't die, you won't suffer, you won't be put in jail. He just says, deal with it, you know, deal with it. And if you do, I'll give you a reward, is really what he says. Acknowledge, you know, that he's present with us. He is. Acknowledge him as sovereign and on the throne. He, he is, and he is on the throne. Acknowledge him in the storm as our God and our king, and he is there. That is the faith. Right here to the church at Smyrna, he says, fear not, don't be afraid of those things which you will suffer. And while I take solace in the directive to not fear, I am a little disconcerted about that suffering that it's not gonna stop, he doesn't promise it. It seems Jesus gets specific on that suffering. He says, they are going to, behold, he says, the devil, sorry, shall cast some of you into prison. So here's a specific Smyrna believers, the devil. Now, think about this. Was the devil walking about and grabbing people and throwing them into prison? No. Who was walking about and grabbing people and throwing them into prison? People. People whose father was the devil. 
who are of the synagogue of Satan. This is what he's saying. The devil, through others, he still has the ability to get people to do bad things. They are of the synagogue of Satan. They are not truly Jews whose heart is for God and for justice and righteousness and goodness and mercy. That's, they truly aren't. They are of the synagogue of Satan. This is how it works. But then we are provided with the purpose and the reason why. Where he says that, verse 3, you may be tried. So now we know. It's so we can be tried. That's why. When you're suffering, you're in the midst of it, no matter what it is. I mean, even a hangnail is suffering. And you wonder, God, why? Why me? I can't get rid of this darn thing. I've been to seven doctors and I still have the hang. Suffering is suffering. That you may be tried. Peter wrote some astounding words we've already covered in 1 Peter 1, 6, 9. He says, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Ready? That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with unspeakable joy and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. He says, Rejoice, the trial of your faith is more precious than of gold that perishes. And he says it's going to be to the receiving, listen to this, end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Because we are in a once saved, always saved, one moment of salvation period in church history, the idea that his grace ensures our our salvation permanently once we've received him, we have a tendency to ignore that our faith is tried by God and that the reward is the end of our faith would be the salvation of our souls. That is lost today, but is definitely scriptural. That yes, he does say, I love you, you have been, I give you my salvation. Now abide in the vine. And we are tried while we are abiding in that vine, being pruned back by God. He's cutting back, which is not pleasurable, Jesus says in John 15. And he's cutting us back and he's throwing the dross down of our branches and, and that's painful, but we're abiding in the vine and it is so that we will produce more fruit. It's the trial of our faith. The reason that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes that the trial of your faith, more precious than gold than that which perishes. Though it be tried with fire, it might be found to the praise and honor and glory of God. That's why. That's why God allows believers to suffer. The trial of their faith is more precious than gold that passes through and perishes in the fire. We'll stop there because that's the first or second or third, I can't remember, of the things that he says to them when it comes to their suffering. And if they endure, he will give them the crown of life. And then he says, and you will not be hurt in the uh, second death, which is the lake of fire. And that's important uh, application as we'll get to it next week. Questions or comments? Wendy has the mic. Nothing? Back row. Please state your name. Yes, my name is Nathan. Uh, I'd just like you to clarify, what is your opinion on what happens to the, uh, the non-believers that died in modern times? The non-believers? The non-believers. My opinion, from my understanding of Scripture, is they will um, immediately be resurrected to a resurrection of damnation, whatever that means. They will go to the lake of fire, where they will, in the presence of Christ and his angels, uh, be purged of all the pack that's on their camel's back. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and they'll crawl through into the kingdom. As what, I don't know. They will not be sons and daughters. They won't be saved from the second death. 
but I do believe they will be reconciled uh, to God. Then what do you define the second death as? The lake of fire, a trip to the lake of fire, which no one wants. <laughs> That's how I would see it. Is that it? All right, anything else? Okay, uh, one announcement. We need to exit the building fairly rapidly. There's, they're taping a new show tonight. They've gone to a lot of work. Uh, it's pretty exciting, in fact. Would you share just quickly with the group what, what you guys are doing? Really quickly. This is an interesting. It's uh, Aletheia Ministries is just, uh, they're, they're actually, go ahead. The mic. Wendy? All right, for you guys. Oh, Danny, I didn't see you here. Danny. Oh, okay, one of you guys. And so what are you bringing in? Are you, bring, are you bringing actors? How's that going to work, Danny? Um, Tell my grandsons to be quiet or they'll be beaten. So we have actors show up at 4 o'clock. We have parts. Some are going to be missionaries. And one's going to be a Christian. And there's going to be a conversation up on the stage. It's going to be filmed. It's going to be like eight-minute episodes. We'll end up in a long one. We're hoping we'll be able to have other episodes all together. Richard Dutcher is going to direct. And Seth's doing all the filming. Who's editing? All right. And how will they access this, Danny? And just to let you go. Excellent. Stan? One little first episode uh, error. Um, <laughs> Three months? Yeah, we, we got to do the promotional. Then we're going to do a little bit of a fundraising thing to go with it. We're going to take it out across the country to, to all Christian organizations and Christians alike to see if they're interested in getting this information. And then we'll, once we get to kind of the red and, and green light, we'll just come in here and And just to let our audience here and at home know, Aletheia Ministry, Sean McCraney has absolutely nothing to do with this. In fact, this ministry is receiving 
funds. They are paying for the use of this place to uh, be able to do these productions. I am not associated with it, with my weird thoughts and everything. They just like the studio setup. They're going to use it. They're going to film it, and they're going to try to get other churches to help them get this out. And like Danny said, they're carrying on what I used to do on Heart of the Matter, uh, more of the dialogue with the LDS. So just wanted to make that clear. Anything else? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and we, we just pray that we'll understand better how you operate in and among us humans and your love for us, your ways with us, your direction. We pray that you will uh, help us to understand the, the decisions you make on uh, behalf of our lives here and we'll accept them in faith and in, and in love and move forward. We pray for those who are on our list. We pray for our sister Heidi always and she'll continue on in your hands and your care and the care of the doctors who have been so good with uh, treatment of her cancer. We pray for Jarvis and the, his battling cancer. Marlene Stubbs to be healed of her ailments. Leah to be able to be healed of the depression she is in. Uh, Caitlin, to be healed of uh, lupus. Uh, Taylor Godfrey, for his addiction, and you'll help him to overcome that. Our sister Liz and her reoccurring hip problems, which have been such a bane to her life. To Harmony, bless her with comfort in her trials, to help her feel loved and know she's not alone. We also pray we'll exit here and be better Christians to our neighbors here in the state and other places where people are watching might live and that we will uh, respond uh, as you would respond and we'll speak as you would speak. We'll love as you would love. Lord, bless uh, the production that's gonna go on tonight. We pray that your spirit will be here in abundance. Technical difficulties will be zero and they will be able to uh, present something that is meaningful and is current with what's going on in the Mormon Christian debate. You'll bless the actors with the tone and ability to act these parts out with Danny the writer and, and everything that's going on with it that more people will come out of the bondage of religion and into a true relationship with you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cheers.